Well, hey there, athletes. This is Kim Constable. Welcome to the Strong and Sculpted podcast, the podcast by me, Kim Constable, the Sculpted Vegan, about all things strong and all things sculpted. And this week, we are going to talk about dieting. Now, not dieting specifically as in how to diet, but we're going to talk about the thing that I see happening all over the world, which has happened to me many times, which may have happened to you or you may be going through it right now. And that is about being half on and half off a diet all the time. I see this everywhere. Women say, oh no, I can't have that. I'm on a diet. Oh, I can't have that. I'm on a diet. Oh, I can't have that. I'm on a diet. And I'll be like, oh great. You know, when's your diet end? And they look at me confused. They're like, what, what do you mean? When does it end? I'm like, well, when does it end? Like, what, you know, what's, what's your goal? What's your end point? And they're like, uh, well, I don't really have one. I'm just on a diet because I, like, I want to lose this five pounds. I'm like, well, when are you going to lose it by? Uh, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, this is really confusing to me. So I realized that it's actually something that I used to suffer from. So it's not really that confusing. I, I just say that. Um, but it, it is something that I used to suffer from. I see women suffer from it all the time. And I wanted to break it down today and talk about my experience and also just to, you know, help you a little bit to understand why this be, could be potentially happening to you and also what you can do about it. Because, you know, I love to give you solutions to overcome the problems as well. So first of all, I want to tell you that um, you can win one of our incredible Sculpted Vegan programs simply by leaving a review on iTunes. All you have to do is leave a review. You can leave one. Well, not even iTunes. It can be iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast, just don't leave it on our website. we That's not where we count the reviews from. It has to be one of the online platforms, so don't leave it on the website. But um, definitely leave a review. We are opening up the 18-month Sculpt and Shred program on the 12th of March. I believe it's the 12th of March. It might actually be the 14th, but I think it's the 12th. I think it's the 12th of March. I never know the, the, the dates of the things happening in my company, but um, 12th of March, I believe, is when it's opening again. Um, the 18-month Sculpt and Shred program is $1,500 to purchase. There is a monthly payment plan of course, but you could win a copy for free simply by leaving a review on my um, podcast on wherever you're listening to it. So if you want to leave that review, just hop on over there, leave it. You can leave one every single month to be in with the chance of winning. We only choose from the reviews that were left that month. So hop on over there now and get to it. And now we are going to talk, like I said, about dieting. And this is something I've wanted to talk about for a while, but actually something happened to me recently, which really transformed my life and really transformed my experience of myself. So I thought, you know what, really good time to talk about it tonight. So what do I want to talk about? Well, let me tell you a story first, right? And this is actually a very recent story. It's something that happened to me just tonight, actually. So, well, not really tonight, actually. That happened over the last couple of weeks or nearly over the last couple of months, but it's something that's just come to my awareness recently. And so what happened was I used to have um, an office here in the house. I say used to have an office here in the house, and I'm recording this podcast in the house for a reason, which I will tell you about in a minute. But I've recently, as in like Tuesday of this week, this is now Wednesday, so just yesterday, I moved my office from the house out into um, one of the local towns here close to where I live, which is in Hollywood. So I now have professional offices in Hollywood and I moved in there with my assistant, Courtney, and um, it's been absolutely epic and wonderful and really nice to have my own space. But the reason why I decided to move my office out of the house whenever I had the most beautiful, amazing, wonderful office here in the house was simply because when my office was here in the house, I was never really switched off. So, you know, that never really switched off. Like anyone who works from home is totally going to understand this. Um, we have four homeschooled kids, right? And my kids, you know, obviously don't get up 
in the morning, they don't go out to school, they're always here in the house. Now, because of how much I work, many of you will know that I also have, you know, a full-time chef and a full-time housekeeper. And so here at home every day, there's always loads and loads of people around the house. And actually, we had someone come in the other day to put new fires in. We needed to get new fire fronts in. And this guy, and the guy said to me, guy says that this house is like Piccadilly Circus. He says, it's always busy every time I'm here. And I laughed and I was like, yeah, you know, it is. It's true. Like this house is so busy. They, the kids have friends coming in and out. You know, the dogs running in and out. We have, you know, Lorraine rushing around the place. We have, you know, different people calling. Amazon's always delivering stuff. Ian's always cooking and he's coming in and out. And my husband, Ryan, is, you know, he has an office, but he, you know, nips home sometimes during the day or does some work from home. And so he's in and out and I'm always working here. And this place is literally always like Piccadilly Circus. And so what I found um, in the last couple of years while I was, you know, while I was growing my company was that whenever I was at home, I was never really fully focused on work, but I was never really fully focused on my family. So because I was being constantly interrupted during the day and because, you know, the kids were coming in to ask me things or Lorraine's coming in to ask me things and because my office was actually or used to be a bedroom, we were kind of running short on cupboard space. So, you know, I used to keep all my clothes in the wardrobes in my office. So Lorraine was always coming in to put clothes away or to put ironing away. And so I'd be sitting there and I'd been having meetings and then, you know, Lorraine would come in just to ask me a quick question and then she'd come back in to ask me another question and then Ian would bring in my lunch and and then, um, you know, one of the kids, Kai, would come in just to ask me a question and then he would knock again and ask me a question and then Maya would come in and say, oh, mommy, you know, just one thing. And like, this wasn't happening continually, but it would happen kind of throughout the day. And it never occurred to me, um, you know, that the reason why I wasn't getting very much work done or the reason why I was feeling kind of stressed sometimes was simply because I was never really 100% committed to work, but I was never really 100% committed to the children. And so because I was... Um, you know, I, like I finish work usually at about five or five thirty because that's whenever we have dinner. So we go downstairs and we have dinner as a family. But because I wasn't getting all of the work done that I needed to do during the day, and I do run a pretty big company, um, I, I was I was having to go back upstairs in the evening. And you know, my company is obviously you know around the world. The Facebook lives that I do are at seven p.m. I'm you know I'm sitting here at nine o'clock at night and I'm I'm recording a podcast episode. So I never really uh, my my work isn't nine to five and it never has been. And I do have the luxury obviously of taking time off whenever I need to and, you know, training as much as I need or going on vacation with my family, but I'm never really 100% turned off. But I'm never really 100% turned on either. So it used to be that I would have finished at a certain time or I would have designated certain afternoons to spend with the kids. And I'd be like, right, every Friday afternoon, that's when I spend with the kids. So I'm not working. The phone goes off, gets left at home. It's just fully focused on the kids. Or then I would have said, right, you know, put a sign on my door and said, you know, mommy's working, do not disturb. Um, didn't really ever keep anybody out anyway. But, you know, Lorraine never thought it applied to her. So she would have come in and out and put, you know, put clothes away anyway and or emptied the coffee machine or brought me in new cups or just, you know, tidied up in general, emptied the bin. And so this constant disturbance of my working day meant that I was never really fully focused on work. So I was never really fully focused on the kids and I was never really fully focused on work. And the problem with this was that I never really achieved anything significant in work. Or I did, but it took an awful long time or a lot longer than it actually should have because I wasn't able to really just switch off and focus on one thing. So yes, I'm kind of spending a lot of time with my kids or I see my kids a lot, but I'm not really focused on my kids. You know what I mean? I'm not like focused, focused on them. Or 
you know, the business has grown and the business has grown a lot over the last couple of years, but I haven't really been, you know, it probably hasn't grown at the rate that it could have, or I couldn't have, you know, there's probably more that I could have done or programs I could have gotten written faster or things could have been done much more efficiently, but I couldn't do them simply because I was working here from home and I was constantly being interrupted during the day. So how does this relate to, you know, what I'm talking about? Well, it's kind of like constantly being on a diet, but never really achieving anything. And I do see this quite a lot with women who are, especially women in my program, and they're, they always feel like they're you know, that they're on a diet or they're always trying to lose a bit of weight or they're always trying to get the scale weight down. And, but then, you know, and I see them, but then, and, and these same, same women, even friends of mine, you know, they're saying, oh no, I can't have that because I'm on a diet or, oh no, I have to watch what I, I eat because I'm on a diet. And then I see them in, on the weekend and they're drinking wine and they're eating pizza. And I'm like, oh, I thought you were on a diet. They're like, oh yeah, I broke my diet today. I'm off my diet, but then they're back on their diet. And then they're off their diet when a special occasion comes along and then they're back on their diet, but then they're off the diet again because it's Wednesday and they had a stressful day and they want a glass of wine, but then they're back on their diet on Thursday. So they're never really on their diet and they're never really off their diet. And so the problem is they never really achieve anything great. They never really achieve being super, super lean and they never really achieve the satisfaction of allowing themselves to eat, to build muscle and grow if that's what they're doing, especially the women on my program. They never, and I mean, let's talk for about the women on my program specifically. You know, they, they, the ones who really make incredible progress in the program are the ones who allow themselves, who give themselves permission to, to put on some body fat, to eat big, to eat loads of carbs, to fuel their muscles and grow for an entire 12 months before then they start to shred. So they are fully committed to the building process and they are, they are fully committed to the shred process. We are scared of getting fat, right? We have these primitives in our body. We are fearful of being fat. Now, why are we fearful of being fat? Why is it such a big thing for us to be fat? Why is it hard for us just to accept ourselves the way we are, whether we are a skinny mini or whether we are a size 20? Why can we not just accept the process? Well, I think that part of the problem is that whenever we are younger, we learn our beliefs or we build our belief structure whenever we are young before we are even cognitive, okay? So cognition only happens whenever a child is about 11 or 12 or 13, sometimes a little older, sometimes a little younger, but cognition usually happens by the age of 13. Now, what is cognition? Cognition is when a child can make sense of the world. That is when they can put two and two together and get four. It's when they can see someone is angry and maybe it brings up their fight or flight, but they will say, oh, wow, well, this doesn't really mean anything about me or this person may be angry because they've had a bad day or like they don't they don't just react to it and make it mean a whole lot of shit that isn't actually true. They are able to reason it out in their mind. So they can actually make, you know, reason of things. And that happens after a child reaches cognition. But before a child reaches cognition, they are simply pattern finders, right? They are pattern completers and pattern finders. What do I mean by this? Well, well, let me let me tell you what happened to me. Whenever I was, um, whenever I was very young, I think I was about uh, five, maybe. I um, my, I decided that I would try and feed the cat. We, my my grandma was looking after us, right, and she lived right beside us. Like literally, our houses were joining, and so I said to my grandma, "Oh, I'm just going to run inside and get something because I left something in the house." And she said, oh, "That's okay, no problem." My, my parents were both out, and she was taking care of us. So I ran into the house to get something. I can't even remember what it was I wanted to get, but whenever I went into the house, the cat was meowing. The cat was meow meow, and I remember thinking, "Oh, the cat's hungry. I I should feed the cat." And I remember being in the house. And 
and thinking, oh, isn't this interesting? I've never been in the house by myself before because I was like five or whatever. So I'd never been left alone in the house before. So I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll feed the cat. So I thought I'd be terribly grown up and feed the cat. So I took a, um, a tin of cat food out and I went over to the sink and I looked up at the tin opener. It was one of those ones that was actually fastened to the wall. I don't know whether you have those anymore, but you would have like, you know, the tin would have kind of, you know, clicked up into it almost with a magnet. And then you would have turned a handle on the side and that, you know, the lid popped off. And so I thought to myself, I looked up at the tin opener and I thought, I really don't know how to use this. And I kind of tried to click it in and tried to shove it in and, you know, imitate what my mum, you know, I'd seen her doing and I couldn't get it to work. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I will just open the tin with a knife. Yep, this is what I thought. Five years of age. And so I opened the drawer and I got out a cheese knife. Now, I don't know if you guys know what a cheese knife is, but the cheese knives that we have here in Ireland, um, there's all different types of cheese knife, but this one was kind of curved in the middle, okay? It just had like, it was a long knife, um, maybe about a four inch blade and it was slightly serrated, so not really sharp um, and it was curved in the middle. And so I thought, I will try and stab open the tin with a cheese knife, okay? Five years of age, tin of cat food, trying to stab open. The, the the tin with the cheese knife. And I'd only been in the house a few minutes. Obviously, my grandmother had, um, she was probably wondering where I was. But so I opened, so I picked up the tin and I decided to try and stab open this tin. And so, of course, I stabbed at it a couple of times. What happened? Knife slipped, um, sliced my finger open across my index finger on my left hand. I still have a big curved scar on that finger. Um, and I, you know, the, the knife slipped or whatever. And I was like, oh my, you know, and I was like, oh shit. Well, I probably didn't say shit because I was only five, but I I was like, oh, oh, oh dear, oh dear. So I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? So I ran back into my grandmother's and I said, I said, Grandma, Grandma, I said, I've cut myself. And she said, oh my goodness, oh, what did you do? What did you do? And I said, the cat was hungry and I tried to open the tin, you know, in the house and I and I used a knife. And of course, my grandma probably felt, holy God, how am I going to tell this girl's mother that in my care, she's literally sliced her finger open. And there was a big like flap of skin hanging off my finger. And my grandma said, it's okay, we'll bandage it up, love, we'll bandage it up. So Grandma put a bandage on it, right? And um, I remember we had to go to Irish dancing that day and I you know, was at Irish dancing and, and my finger was actually quite sore. And I remember saying to my mom, so I had this bandage around it and my mom had taken us and I said, mommy, mommy, my finger's quite sore. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do Irish dancing anymore. And she said, um, oh, let me see your finger. And the blood was starting to seep through the bandage. And she said, let me have a look at that, Kimmy. So she took the bandage off my finger. And of course, you know, my the, it was actually, this, the cut on my finger was very deep. And she obviously had thought, Thought, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, gonna have to um, get something done about this. So she said, Kimmy, we're gonna have to take you to, I mean, we lived way out in the country. There was no hospital in the country, but she's gonna have to take you to the clinic. So the clinic was like the local place, you know, healthcare place where you would have gone um, if, you know, if you hurt yourself. So she said, I'm gonna take you to the clinic. And I don't really remember what happened after that, but I do remember that they decided I needed three stitches in my finger. Now, this was 35 years ago, right? There was no anesthetic to be had in those days whenever you got stitches in your finger. And I remember, you know, my mum saying to me, Kimmy, this is going to be really, really sore, but you're going to squeeze my hand and they only have to put in three stitches and, you know, you're going to be fine. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I remember lying there on the bed and I remember they, you know, they put the needle through my finger and they stitched up this cut and they put three stitches in my finger without anesthetic. And I remember like, you know, with every stitch I went in, I was screaming and squeezing my mother's hand. And, you know, it, but I don't remember it being like really traumatic or anything. It was just like, my mom set it up really well. It's going to be really sore, but you're going to squeeze my hand and you're, you know, it's going to, you're going to be fine. And, you know, she was a pretty tough, you know, which wasn't tough, but she was, you know, sensible or whatever. She just was like, okay, this needs done. You're going to be, I'm sure it was very traumatic for her. Actually, it would be very traumatic for 
me watching my child get their their fingers stitched at age five. So anyway, um, I remember after it was over, my mom, you know, I was lying there in the bed and I was like, oh, I was really sore, mommy. And but I don't, like I said, I don't remember being traumatized or anything by it. I just remember thinking it was sore. And um, then my mom said to me, right, now we're going to go and buy you a Barbie doll. And I was like, really? And like my mom, you know, this was like, we had this shop called the Rinka, which was close close to us, right? And uh, it does it does ice cream. It's very famous in Island Gate called the, the Rinka. And um, so we we used to go to the Rinka, and they had like this whole wall of Barbies. And if you're if you're a little girl, right, and you look up at all these Barbie dolls, I remember being like in wonder, like oh, oh my god, these Barbies, and they were all like nine or ten pounds, which was a lot of money in those days. And uh, I remember just standing there and, and staring at them in awe, and always trying to get my mom to buy me one. On every time we were there and and uh, she said we're going to go out to the rink and get you a Barbie and you can choose any one that you want and I was like any one because there was obviously ones that were more expensive like 20 pounds and stuff wearing like you know sparkly ball gowns and, and I remember being like oh my goodness this is amazing and she drove me to the rink and I was so excited and we went in and you know she let me browse and I chose whatever Barbie it was that I wanted I think it was crystal Barbie at the time I remember she had a purple dress she had purple eyes I remember being blown away by that so I chose this Barbie and I took this Barbie home and I remembered, you know, oh, I was absolutely over the moon with this Barbie. I do not remember anything more about my finger or anything more about, you know, the healing or anything that happened with that. It was just that, you know, all I was focusing on was this Barbie. Now, why on earth am I telling you this story about me getting stitches on the Barbie doll? Well, simply because human beings especially children, are pattern finders and pattern completers, okay? Pattern finders and pattern completers. And recently, um, I was working, I have a coach, a business coach, actually, um, a highly successful business coach, uh, a multi-million dollar company owner, business coach, who is also a trained psychologist um, who I've been working with recently. I'm getting absolutely phenomenal success with. And um, I was describing recently how after a period of working extremely hard and, you know, having an awful lot of stress that I had, um, that I had gone and treated myself to new Christian Louboutin shoes highly expensive um, and also a brand new Louis Vuitton bag uh, in the one shopping spree. And you would think, well, there's nothing wrong with that, Kim, because you work very, very hard. And I think I bought Chanel sunglasses as well on the same day. So I, she was like, you, you know, you would say there's nothing wrong with that. You work very hard. You're entitled to spend your money however you want. But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I realized recently through doing some personal work that I have a pattern, right, that whenever I work really, really, really hard and I have a period of stress or a period of, you know, uncertainty or growing the business or whatever, or there's some fear in there, that I believe, subconsciously, I don't even know that I'm doing it, I believe that I deserve or should get or I'm entitled to some kind of present for myself. So every time I have a period of stress or a period of, you know, working really hard or a period of um, or something, any kind of stress, I reward myself with some kind of spending. And I didn't even realize that I had this until my husband actually brought it up one day and he was like, oh, yeah, after a big launch, Kim always goes, you know, and, and spends money and treats herself. And I was like, do I? And he was like, 
yes, of course you do. I was like, do I really? I didn't even realize I did it. And he was like, yeah, you do. And I was like, wow, that must be a pattern. I wonder why, you know, where that came from. I want to look at that. So whenever I dug down deeper, what I realized was this memory of me getting the stitches and going through that really, really hard time, just at the end of that time, my mother said to me, I'm going to take you and I'm going to buy you a Barbie. So I switched the bad feeling into a good feeling, which was fantastic. But what I did was I, I built what's called a postulate. I built a belief. I built a pattern in my DNA, if you like, in my primitives, we call them. I built a pattern in my primitives that after every period of stress or hardship, what should come is some kind of expensive gift that makes you feel good. So I have gone through my entire life rewarding myself with expensive gifts after a period of hardship. Now, is this bad? Well, no, it's not if you can afford to, but there's many times in my life that I haven't been able to afford to, but I felt like the pattern isn't complete or I felt like there's something missing in my life if I don't get the reward at the end of it. So I see this happening all the time with food. What we do is, um, you know, I and I saw this happen the other day and I was like, oh, there you are. There's a, there's a postulate. There's a primitive going in right there. A little girl um, on this, we were actually um, in the middle of Belfast and a little girl was running along full pelt as they do. She must have been about three years of age running along full pelt and she was running so fast that she tripped over her own feet and she fell flat on her face on the ground and she started to cry and she was like ah! and I think it was her grandmother you know was with her and she came running over and she was just a little bit behind her because the girl had been running and she picked her up and she was like don't cry don't cry don't cry here come on here's some chocolate here's some chocolate and she took some chocolate out of her bag and she gave the little girl chocolate and I was like oh dear <laughs> there there's there's a, there's a belief going in there that's going to haunt that girl for the rest of her life. And I think she said, here's some chocolate to make you feel better. Now, why is this damaging? Well, whenever we believe that we need chocolate to make ourselves feel better, can you see how this might be a problem going into adulthood? <laughs> Just a little bit of a teeny tiny problem. And, and I think that this happens all the time. Whenever, you know, our children fall or whenever we fell as children, if whoever we were with didn't want to see us cry or it made them feel uncomfortable whenever we were crying, they rewarded us with food or they used food to help us to change our state and not cry. Not because there's anything wrong with crying, but because they didn't want us to cry because it made them feel bad. So unfortunately, then we learned that in order to mask mask pain or in order to take pain away, we need food. So we never learn to process our emotions. We never learn to just accept that feeling bad or feeling emotional, or feeling anything is part of life, and we don't need to stuff those emotions down with food. Because the thing is, children know whenever the big people are trying to get them to stop crying. Children don't know that emotions are bad. To children, emotions are just emotions. They cry as babies. They cry as toddlers. They laugh. They jump. They skip. They, they are Children are highly emotional beings. They have a massive emotional bandwidth. They are joyful on one side, and they are suicidal on the other side, you know, they are either like if they fall and hurt themselves, they will cry very loudly and let you know and they are not afraid of showing you how happy they are or how sad they are. But how they learn that these things are bad is from the adults around them. You know, it's the same as the, the child who falls and, you know, and the parent then smacks the ground and goes, bad ground, bad ground, that naughty ground, you know, made you fall. And you can see the child looking at the ground confused. And the thing about, and I'm like, oh, please don't do that to your child. And and, and I know the intent of the parent is really good. You know, we, we just want the child to stop crying. We want them to feel better. But the reason we want them to feel better is so we 
can feel better. Them crying causes us pain because we never learn to process our emotions as children. So therefore, we never allow our children to process their emotions because somehow we believe that crying is bad. And children know that you're trying to get them to stop crying. They know, like, if they're crying and you start doing all of these crazy behaviors, like jumping around and laughing or smacking the ground or giving them food, they know that you're trying to get them to stop crying, okay? And so they, they but they don't know why you're trying to get them to stop crying because to them, crying isn't bad. To them, crying is just an emotion. But they know you're trying to get them to stop crying. And so they look at you confused and they're like, why is this Why is this person trying to get me to stop crying? So they go, oh, well, crying must be bad. Crying must be something that we must not do because otherwise, why would this big person who I love and respect be expending all of this energy trying to get me to stop doing it? So they build the belief that crying is bad. And quite often, one of the things or one of the ways that that happens is through rewarding um, children from stop who stop crying with food. We reward them with food. We say, if you, you know, to make you feel better, we'll take you for ice cream. To make you feel better, we'll, you know, we'll buy you some chocolate. And then what happens is, as they get older, the chocolate turns into wine or the chocolate turns into drugs or the chocolate turns into something else that's destructive, spending, you know, medicating ourselves in some way to make ourselves feel better because we never learned to process our emotions as children. So therefore, we use all kinds of behavior, especially food, in order to make ourselves feel better. And this is part of the reason why we have this yo-yo of I'm on a diet, I'm off a diet, I'm on a diet, I'm off a diet. Like we make a commitment, right? Human beings are value-making machines, right? We're meaning-making machines, but we also are value-making machines. We love to find value in things. We love to build value. We love to create value. Like look at the incredible cities we've built. Look at the amazing technology that we have that human beings have built. We love to build value, but we also just want to feel good, Okay, we want to feel good. And sometimes these these competing values, you know, building something which requires us to maybe, you know, self-sacrifice a little bit and feeling good start competing. And so sometimes what happens is we take on a diet or we take on a, a gym program or we take on something that we know is good for us or building a business, you know, with some of the things that I can relate to. And then something happens that causes us, you know, that knocks us off course. You know, when 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 everything is going wonderfully, we are on it. When, you know, when everything in our life is okay and our relationship is good and our parents are healthy and our kids are fine and and you know, or or our health is good or whatever, we are on it. And then something happens to trigger a negative emotion. And because we never learned how to process those negative emotions as children, what happens is we self-sabotage. We go on a binge. We, you know, we reward ourselves with wine or with chocolate or, you know, or with cake or with cookies or, you know, we we never truly learn self-control. We never learn mastery of ourselves and we never learn mastery of our emotions. So we, we start out with the intent of being on a diet or not even being on a diet. We start with the intent of being slim or being different somehow. We recognize that how we are isn't how we want to be. So we make a commitment to ourselves to change. But unfortunately, we are so quickly knocked off course when something negative happens because we have these patterns that we build as children of ways of comforting ourselves, which generally don't include just processing the emotion, meditating on it, feeling it, recognizing that emotions are part of living and part of being, and just allowing the emotion to pass through. 
I think there's a hypothesis that it takes anger seven minutes to, to process through your body and leave your body. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that sometimes if I'm ever feeling angry, um, I sit there and I think, okay, and I feel like I'm so angry, say, at my husband or something, like, and I want to lash out at him. And I know that if I, you know, but if I just sit there and I just allow the anger to pass through and I don't indulge it and I allow it to process, that in seven minutes it will be gone. And it usually is gone after seven minutes. It's amazing. But we aren't taught these um, these these strategies we aren't given these tools as children because our parents didn't have them ourselves like we can't even themselves we can't blame them and say you never taught me how to process my emotions they had no clue they had no clue either okay this is stuff that you have to learn and then once you've learned it then you have to integrate it into your own body and then you have to pass it on to your children so if you don't learn to process your process your emotions unfortunately a lot of times or you don't learn to look for the patterns in your life that you have, like me with the, you know, rewarding myself every time I, you know, have a, a hard time rewarding myself by spending something, by spending money. If you don't become aware of these patterns, you'll never, ever be able to transform them. However, you know, just becoming aware of the pattern really isn't, you know, isn't enough. There's, you know, you, the problem with, with, with human beings is, we we lack clear goals in our life. And you hear me talk about this all the time. And unfortunately, this lack of clear goals causes, you know, causes us to be upset and confused, right? So, you know, becoming aware of your patterns and becoming aware of your primitives and learning how to process your emotions is one thing. But if you don't put all of this work that you're doing to good use, you're never going to amount to anything. And the problem as well, whenever people start training in the gym or they start with, you know, a, a program like say my 18 month sculpt and shred program is they don't accept the process of what it truly takes to get results. And the reason they don't accept the process of what it truly takes to get results, i.e. build a spectacular body, is because they're so focused on being thin and they're so focused on not getting fat. Okay. Now, why are we focused on being thin or why are we so terrified of being fat? Well, again, a lot of it does come down to social conditioning and it's different for every person, but I really encourage you to think deeply about the things that I, I'm talking about today and to really find your own patterns and and your ways that you learn these things. Because um, what happened to me recently was I was actually working with my coach and we were working on something in the business, interestingly, and I said to her, yeah, oh my God, like I, I just, you know, I said, I don't know what it is, but I just focus on the imperfections. She said to me, do you ever take a minute just to sit back and say, holy Christ, like I did this. She said, do you ever take a minute and sit back and just go, you know, wow, like look at what I have achieved. She said, just to appreciate what you have achieved. Because, you know, I don't know if you're new to this podcast or not, but in the last, uh, I only started bodybuilding four years ago. And in the last three years, I started the Sculpted Vegan three years ago. In the last three years, uh, we have grown the Sculpted Vegan to a multi-million dollar company. We, you know, we're set to turn over $4 million this year. We now are the largest vegan bodybuilding company in the world. We sold over 10,000 programs in the last two years. And I have, a, you know, I grew the company single-handedly um, as a stay-at-home mom. I didn't have a housekeeper and a personal chef and all that in the beginning. You know, I was a stay-at-home mom. I had zero help at home and, and I had nobody who believed in me or even thought that vegan women around the world were actually going to buy like a bodybuilding program, let alone one that was 12 or 18 months long. So I had nothing but my belief in myself and a determination to make it happen. And I 
I built this company from scratch. And she said to me, do you ever take a minute to sit back? And I said, no, I don't really. I said, because I'm always focusing on what I could do better or what's missing or what I could do wrong or, or what I've done wrong or, you know, all these things. She said, why do you focus on the imperfections? And I said, I don't know what it is. I said, but you know, it's the same with my body. She said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I'm always focusing on the imperfections. She said, Kim, you're 40 years of age and you have probably one of the best bodies I've ever seen in my entire life on a 40-year-old woman. She said, what you have achieved in such a short time is insane. How on earth can you find an imperfection? Like she was absolutely baffled. And I said, I know it's crazy. I said, I, but every time I look in the mirror, I said, I don't see, you know, what I do see what I've built. I said, I can look at, oh, yes, I mean, you aren't my shoulders wide and oh wow yes my glutes are bigger I said but every time I look at my butt all I see is my saggy left butt cheek and she was like you're what and I said my saggy left butt cheek she's like you do not have a saggy left butt cheek I said I do I have a saggy left butt cheek and the line is longer than on the other side and it just sags more than the other side and I hate my bum because of it she said but your glutes are incredible you've built the most amazing set of glutes and I said I know but I just have this saggy butt cheek and I don't like it she was like you are insane so she said right let's break this down and let's you know let's really look at this and let's see where this you know came from and she said you know and she always gets you to focus on the feeling and she said you know what you know what is the you know what is the feeling of of the saggy butt cheek why do you need to focus on the imperfections and i and i thought for a second and i said to her do you know i said whenever i was younger um, and I'm very good at doing this because I've, you know, I've done a lot of self-work for over the, a lot of personal work over the years. And quite often, you know, um, patterns that drive our, our adult life are built, not quite often, they're always built in childhood, but quite often they can be traced back to a specific incidence where this belief or this pattern was built. And so I said to her, I remember whenever I was really young, I was probably only about four and I was just learning to write in school. And I was, you know, um, I was practicing my writing and I was sitting in my dad's secretary's office and my dad was a car dealer. So his uh, office was across the forecourt from his secretary's and Lillian was out this day. And I remember going into her office and we loved going into Lillian's office, my sisters and I, and we would have taken out the pens and the pencils and she had a little envelope where she used to, you know, keep stamps and different things. And so I remember sitting down at her desk and taking out, you know, a, a piece of paper and I thought, I'm going to make a card for my mom and dad. And they were still together at this point. And so I took out a card and I drew a picture of me and a picture of my mom and a picture of my dad, just stick figures, very crudely drawn. And I wrote on, I remember writing, to mommy and daddy, I love you. And I remember stopping and thinking, oh, is it you or is it yous? And I thought, hmm, I remember in school they told us to make something, if it's more than one, you put an S on the end of it. And I thought about this very deeply. It's a very clear memory for me. I thought about this very deeply and I thought, is it you or yous? Huh. And I couldn't figure it out. So I thought, it's probably yous because there's two of them. So I'll just go with yous. So I wrote, I love yous. And then I wrote underneath, you know, love Kim. And I was so proud of myself and I folded it up and I put flowers on the front of it. You know, I, I drew flowers on the front of it. And, and I remember I ran across to my daddy's office and uh, no, I ran across to my mum actually first. And uh, no, I didn't. I went to my dad. I went to my dad and I went around across to my dad because he was closest. And I said, Daddy, I made you a picture. You know, whenever your child brings you in a picture and, you know, there's it's so, you know, and, and and they've drawn it for you and they're so proud of it. And that's how I was. And I brought it in. I said, I, I made you a, I made you a note. I drew you a picture. I made you a note. And he said, oh, Kimmy, he said, come here. You know, he pulled me up on his knee and 
And he said, let me see it. And he, op- he was sitting at his desk and he opened up the, the letter and he looked inside and he said, oh, it's so beautiful. And he said, to mommy and daddy, I love yous. And then he said to me, oh, but look, he said, you've spelt yous wrong. He said, it's not yous. It, he said, it's you. So the plural of you is you. And he said, but don't worry, we can make it perfect. And he took out a bottle of Tipex. My dad loved Tipex, still does to this day. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a perfectionist. And so he took out the bottle of Tipex and he Tipexed out the, the S. And I remember sitting there feeling like, oh, just like I, I was so cross with myself or I was disappointed because I, I had struggled over that decision for, well, what felt like ages. It was probably like 30 seconds, maybe even 10 seconds in my like four little brain, four year old little brain. And I struggled over that um, decision of making, you know, is it you or you's? And watching him sitting there tip out the tip X out the X, I remember thinking, I will never make that mistake again. Like I, you know, I remember just feeling the card was now imperfect and it, it wasn't as good as it could have been because, you know, and, and there was the tip X to prove it. And I, he said, go and show it to your mommy. And, and I ran over to the house with it, but it really wasn't quite the same anymore. And I went in and I said, mommy, look, I, you know, I made you a card and I already showed it to daddy. And she opened it. She said, oh, look, it's so beautiful. And I love this. And she said, why is there tip X on the card? And I said, it was just a piece of paper folded. And I said, oh, because I spelled it wrong. And so daddy, you know, tip X it out for me. And she was like, oh, right. Okay. No problem. So she put it up on the shelf. Now, why is this memory important, okay? Maybe you guys are listening to it and you're going, oh my God, like I had the similar experience or whatever. But what I realized through reliving this memory was through the most wonderful intent in the world, which was to teach me my dad had inadvertently not taught me how to spell the word use, but he taught me to look for the imperfection. He taught me that, or what I, he didn't teach me what I believed, what I chose to believe from that was that I, my effort was not perfect. My effort was not good enough as it was, and it wasn't good enough because whenever I brought it to him, it was lovely, but it needed tipexed. There was some part of it that needed tipexed. And so whenever I relived this with my coach, she said to me, well, how do you think that this relates to your left butt cheek? And I was like, uh, really? You think they're related? <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, I had this epiphany moment where I thought, holy shit, it's right. I thought, you know... I can't just accept things the way they are. I'm always looking for the imperfection. I can't just be proud of my effort. Like, you know, as a child, if I was able to recognize that it wasn't me my dad was correcting, it was actually himself. My dad is a massive perfectionist and his parents were huge perfectionists. So he was probably taught as a child or not even criticized as a child, but, you know, corrected many, many, many times for being in, you know, imperfect. And so therefore he, you know, he had a, the seeing that he could never have left that card the way it was. To my dad, the minute he looked at it, it was a screaming imperfection. It should not be used. It should be you. And in that moment, he had no clue that by, you know, by tipexing out my effort, he was teaching me that, in my that my effort wasn't good enough or that's what i was choosing to believe that wasn't my effort wasn't good enough and what i would then go through the rest of my life believing was that there was there would always be an imperfection so no matter how much effort i apply in my life no matter how 
great I build my body, no matter how big I build my business, no matter how much money I make, the feeling never went away. I always felt like I could have done better. I always felt like I I should have written one more program. I I should have won one more show. I, I should have eaten one less calorie. I, you know, I looked at my body in the mirror and I couldn't focus on the good parts. All I could focus on was, you know, my stomach will always have loose skin on it because I have been pregnant four times. My my left butt cheek is slightly saggy. The, the skin around my knees is slightly wrinkly. I couldn't accept the imperfections in myself. I couldn't just accept my effort for what it was, realize that I'm a 40-year-old woman I'm who's birthed four beautiful children. Those wrinkles on my tummy are my, they're my, um, my battle wounds, right? They are my stripes. I earned those stripes, every single one of them. And I should be proud of them and not focusing in them, in on them as an imperfection. And what happened after, you know, after I had that realization was my life literally transformed. I, I went from being constantly critical of myself and and almost fearful every time I looked in the mirror and fearful of of getting fat to complete and utter acceptance. And it was an amazing transformation, amazing transformation. And, you know, because up until up until that point, every time I'd finished a show and I'd gone into a building process and I preached this to all my members constantly, I say to them, you have to accept the process, getting fatter, you know, building, getting fluffier, not getting skinnier, not focusing on fat loss all the time is part of the process. It's part of what it takes to sculpt an incredible body because I had to go through it. And I guess the reason why I understand the anguish they're going through is because I felt the same anguish. I never enjoyed the building phase. And in fact, I always did get fluffy and put on a bit of body fat, but I never put on that much. I would never allow myself to really put on body fat. Was A, I don't believe it's actually good for you, but B, I had never really evaluated, should I put on extra body fat? Should I not? Should I eat extra calories? Should I not? Because I was always terrified of getting fat, terrified of getting fat. And, and you know, even whenever I finished prepping, like whenever I finished my last show there, um, I competed in the World Championships last June, June 2019. And I, I knew I wasn't going to compete again. I was I was retiring from, um, from competing. And I, but I said to myself, oh, I'm not going to let myself get fat. I am going to stay lean, okay? I'm going to stay lean all the time. But, you know, unfortunately, I, I wasn't really on a calorie and macro counted plan. And I wasn't really, you know, I, I, I wasn't really working towards a specific goal because being lean, in inverted commas, is not a goal, Okay. Being lean is not a goal because being lean is not measurable. You can't measure lean. You can measure body fat. You can measure, you know, centimeters or inches. You can measure circumference. You can measure weight on the scale. You can measure many, many, many things, but you cannot measure being lean. So I went from, I finished prepping in June to I um, did another shred when I started. It was the end of September. We decided to do a 10-week shred. So from June to the end of October, I lived with this feeling of being half on a diet and half off a diet. And it drove me absolutely insane because I was doing cardio 
So I would get up in the morning and I would do cardio and I would purposely under eat, okay, during the week so that I could eat more on the weekend. So I would, you know, I would I would look at food and I would think, oh, should I have it? Should I not? Should I have it? Not? And then I would be like, oh, okay, I'll just have it. And then after I would eat it, I would feel guilty. Like if it was something that, you know, wasn't, you know, highly nutritious and good for me, like, you know, say even a packet of chips or, a, you know, a packet of ve- or a, a vegan chocolate cake or a vegan ice cream or something, I would have it and then I would feel guilty afterwards. I wouldn't even really enjoy eating it because I'd be eating it and feeling guilty and thinking, oh my God, I shouldn't eat this, I shouldn't eat this, I shouldn't eat this. And then afterwards, I would feel guilty for eating it. And then, you know, I would get up and I would get on the Stairmaster in the morning. And I was I was never, I was half on cardio, I was half off cardio. I was doing 45 minutes here and 30 minutes there and 60 minutes here and 20 minutes there. And, and I was, you know, training in the gym consistently five days a week because I always train. That's one thing that stays consistent. But my cardio and my diet was really quite inconsistent. And I decided that I was, you know, and I was, I was slowly putting on body fat and I was really cross because I felt like I was miserable all the time. And I I was miserable because I wasn't eating enough during the week and then I was overindulging on the weekend, but surely me being miserable during the week warranted me being thinner, right? We seem to have this this warped equation in our minds that the more miserable we are, the more results we deserve, right? So I was like, oh my God, I'm so like, I'm, I'm, I'm just not eating enough during the week and I'm, you know, and I'm starving most of the time and I was had this constant feeling of deprivation. Because And it wasn't even that I was starving. It's just that I was feeling deprived, okay? Feeling like I was depriving myself because even every time I did allow myself to indulge, I felt bloody guilty. So I was living with this constant feeling of guilt and this constant feeling of being half on a diet and half off a diet. And it feckin' drove me absolutely insane. And the, and the only time I actually got happier again was whenever then I went on a shred at the end of September and my husband and I did a 10-week shred for going to Australia. And then suddenly I realized I was happier again. And I wasn't happier again because I was getting leaner. I was happier because I had a purpose and I had a plan and then I could see results. I was eating, you know, X amount of calories per day. I think I started on 1,800 calories. I dropped quite low because it was only a 10-week shred. I was doing cardio for a specific amount of time on a specific specific amount of days. I was training in the gym and I started to see the results. So once I got really consistent again and I decided that I was on a diet, I wasn't half off a diet. I wasn't half on a diet. I was on a diet and I was on a diet for 10 weeks. I was extremely happy and the results started to come in. I was extremely consistent. And this is what happens whenever people come off the four-week shred, which we're just, we've just finished up a four-week shred competition at the minute. We're about to announce on Monday, uh, Monday the 24th of February, the winner of the $10,000 competition. And what people find is after they come off a shred, they feel a little bit purposeless. They don't know what to do. Now, what many of them do is they upgrade into the 18-month Sculpt and Shred program. And the reason why they upgrade into the program is because it gives them a purpose again. But then what they find hard is they don't know how to go back into a period of building or they don't know, not even back into, they don't know how to go into a period of building because being on a period of building or being in a period of eating and training hard has never, has never happened to most women before. So they find it really, really hard. Most of us are used to dieting. Very few of us are used to eating for gain. Men are used to eating for gains. Men eat for gains all the time. They eat big, they train hard. Women are not used to this. And to be honest, I accepted it as part of the process before, but I never, ever enjoyed it. But then what I realized after having that conversation with my coach and having that big realization about, you know, me as a child and Really, I just didn't know that the reason why my dad corrected me wasn't anything to do with me. It was everything to do with him and his beliefs and his need to have things be a certain way, which had nothing to do with me. But I had made it that I was bad and I was wrong and I was imperfect in some way. 
And so therefore, I was constantly seeking to close the gap of perfection. But what I realized that day was that it wasn't about me. It was about him. He was seeking to close his need, his gap of perfection. And and it wasn't anything to do with me at all. And so whenever we came, whenever we came off our shred in Australia, I realized that I didn't have the feeling anymore. The feeling was gone. I was able to look in the mirror and yes, I could see my gains slowly slipping away. I could see my striations slipping away. I had no veins in my abs anymore. I was beginning to lose all of the the shreddedness that I'd worked for. And for the first time in my life, I didn't care. I didn't care that I was losing all of my all of my leanness. Not all of it, because I'm still pretty lean. I'm 17% body fat. I actually got it tested the other day, um, just as part of a healthcare um, regime that I do with a company called Randox Health, where I get a comprehensive blood test twice a year. And I was seven, I'm 17%, and I truly didn't care. I look in the mirror, and I love what I see. In fact, I don't even look in the mirror very much anymore. It's I used to look in the mirror incessantly. I'm talking, guys, incessantly. I couldn't pass a mirror without lifting up my my T-shirt, examining my abs, examining my butt, looking for lines. I was always looking for leanness, always. Now, I have boobs. Well, I have boobs because I bought them because I got a boob job. But, you know, they always looked kind of false. And now they look, well, they didn't look false, but they were, you know, hard. They looked like breast implants. Whereas now, you know, I have a, a layer of fat over my boobs and they look amazing. And I have, you know, fat over my chest and it's not completely striated and split. And it looks beautiful. And I I have a little bit of fat around my tummy and a little bit of skin around my tummy. And I have, you know, my, my ass is a little bit wobbly. And can I tell you something? I haven't even looked at my left saggy butt cheek since last year. In fact, I didn't even remember about it until I started telling you this story in this podcast episode. How epic is that? And what it made me realize is women around the world, men around the world, I'm sure as well, but many women, we have the same feeling. Now, yours may not be the same as mine. You may not have this drive for perfection. Your need to be, you know, constantly different or constantly or thinner or richer or 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 somethinger probably stems from something else, but I guarantee you it stems from something in your childhood. And if you can really dig deep and find those patterns and find those beliefs that you built as a child, you can ultimately start to transform them. The only way to transform a pattern and transform a belief is first to become aware of it. That's the first step to transforming it. Awareness is key, is the key to changing anything in your life. And so, you know, and the thing about it is whenever, you know, children are, are naturally born to love themselves, like who does, who knows a child who doesn't love themselves? Children love themselves. They're always talking about, oh, look at me and mommy, look at me dancing and look at me jumping and mommy, look how high I can jump and mommy, look how amazing I am. And, you know, and, and children don't know to not love themselves until they're taught to not love themselves. And the thing about it is as well, children can't disassociate themselves, their personhood from the things they love until they reach cognition. So whenever a child is very young, especially like I was age four, I I created this note out of my own effort. I felt like this note was part of me. I didn't know it wasn't part of me. I didn't know it was just a product of my effort. I thought it was part of me. And so whenever my dad criticized it, I felt that he was criticizing me. Me. He wasn't even criticizing it. He was just like, he was just like correcting it. But I felt like because this note, I felt like this note was a part of me. I felt like he was criticizing me. And I, I teach this to parents all the time. And you guys keep asking me, 
to talk more about the way that I parent in my podcasts. And I'm kind of doing this a little bit today. And I will talk about my parenting journey and the choices I make as a parent, you know, why we choose to homeschool our kids in a future podcast. But one of the lessons I teach um, parents as well is that whenever you criticize something a child loves, they feel like you are criticizing them because they cannot disassociate themselves from the things they love. So whenever you criticize their computer games or you make them bad and say, you're always on that computer or you're always watching that TV or, you know, you or you criticize, you know, something that they love to eat or you're always eating that that bloody chocolate cake or you should stop doing this. They feel like a part of them is bad. I have never, ever criticized the things that my children love, no matter how wacky and crazy they seem to me, because my children, all children, believe that they are the things they love. They cannot disassociate from it. So when you make something they love bad, they think they are bad because they think this thing is them and they think that they, you know, this it's a part of them. So they think that you are criticizing or that a part of them is bad because you are the God to them. They don't know that you are not God. They think you are all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wonderful, and they totally look up to you and respect you. And if you say that a part of them is bad, they believe you. You need to be very careful with your languaging with children because everything you say to them builds their belief and builds their patterns whenever they are adults. That's why I parent the way I do. It's why I choose to not send my kids into schools to be parented or to be you know, taught values by people who do not love them and whose main value is crowd control, which is really what a school is. I will not give up the 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 education and the 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 patterns of my child's future to anyone else. I will not give that the main bulk of their education up to a teacher who does not love, cherish, and value them as an individual the way that I do. That's why I don't send them to school. And so um, you just have to be really careful and really mindful of of how these beliefs are built. But many people don't believe, don't know that their belief structure is built whenever they are a child. They just have no clue. They don't know that that's how, you know, all of their patterns go in. And so therefore they they don't know to protect their children in that way. People call me overprotective and I'm like, yes, I am. It's my job. It's my job as a mother to overprotect my children. That's why I'm their mother. Okay. I'm not overprotective. I'm protective, but I make, I no apologies for it because it's my job to protect their young life. Once they reach cognition, they reach, you know, teenage years and beyond, then that they get to, you know, protect themselves a little more and we become a little less protective. But I'm very, very, very careful to protect their very young belief systems that are just being built. So, you know, so what's, what's the conclusion here? Like, what is this all about? And, you know, how do you take this information forward and use it, you know, in your life? Well, I mean, just just to circle it back to what I what I started talking about, you know, you can't be on a diet. You sorry, you can't be half on a diet, half off a diet. You're either on a diet or you are off a diet. There really is no in between. You have to accept the process of building. You have to get try to get back to that time when you loved yourself as a child. You cannot constantly be shredding. You cannot constantly be dieting. You cannot constantly be criticizing yourself and focusing on your imperfections. If you want to transform your body or you want to transform your business or you want to transform your life, then you got to get okay with being uncomfortable and you 
you have to learn to sit with your negative emotions and sit with your judgments of yourself and focus in on them and figure out where they came from rather than stuffing them down with food or rather than stuffing them down with spending like I used to do or rather than, you know, or, or pretending that they're not there. You need to get okay with being human and get back to feeling the emotions that you felt as a child. You need to get back in touch with your emotional bandwidth. You know, the, the extent to which you allow yourself to feel sadness is actually the extent to which you can feel happiness on the other side. If you limit your emotional bandwidth on one side, on the negative side, you also limit it on the positive side. I allow myself to feel terribly, terribly, terribly upset. I allow myself to experience the full force of my negative emotions and that allows me to also be ecstatically happy on the other side. So you got to get okay with, with feeling not okay is, is the first step. And also the second step is create clear goals for yourself. Be either on a diet working towards a specific goal or be not on a diet. You don't even have to be building, but just be accepting of the fact that you are not on a diet that you are just living life joyfully. You're choosing to not diet. You're choosing to eat what you want. You're choosing to be fat or be slightly out of shape or whatever you're choosing to be. But be okay with that choice and know that you are perfect just as you are. No matter or despite what anybody told you when you were a child, you are perfect. You are worthy and deserving of love. I love you and you should love yourself. And if you can't love yourself, you need to learn why and you have to try to get back to it. How do you figure all this stuff out and how do you get to a place of loving yourself again? Well, believe it or not, it starts with, you know, with data and with measurement. You need to set yourself a goal and then you need to start working towards it. And believe me, when you start working towards a goal, your limitations will come up. So when you start working towards a, a goal, you start to get data about yourself, about what you do, how you sabotage yourself, you know, how you fall off the wagon, all of those different things. Then all, instead of judging yourself and going, I'm so bad, I'm so whatever, then you, then you get to measure, right? So you, you, you get the data, then you start to measure your results, then you evaluate yourself emotionally, physically, like how did you do physically? Did you achieve your goal? Did you not? How do you feel at the end of it? You know, is it better? Is it worse? And then you make changes based on the data. So you get the data, you measure the process, you evaluate the outcome, and then you make changes accordingly. Did you hit your goal? Great. Did you not? Why not? What can you change in the future to, to make it happen? So, you know, this is all part of the process. You can apply it to body building. You can apply it to life. You can apply it to anything. But you got to get with the data. You got to set a measurable goal. You got to start working towards it, measure, evaluate and change. But but more than anything, you have to get back to knowing yourself again. And you must get back to loving yourself again because you cannot literally be half on and half off. You will only drive yourself insane. So I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. I know I got very deep and very emphatic and there was hardly any swearing in this episode whatsoever. But this is um, something that I've been really working with for, you know, a long time now. And it's something that has been in my mind recently. And I really wanted to share it with you guys. And I hope that you have enjoyed this episode and that you have found it very, very useful. Um, I want to tell you before you go, just to remind you that, you know, we're giving away a free program every month. Make sure you leave your review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you want to send me a screenshot of it as a DM um, on Instagram 
My, my name is The Sculpted Vegan. I would love for you to send me a screenshot of it just so I know that it's there. Um, and I just want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for trusting me with your time and your attention. Um, I want you to, you know, I want to thank you for allowing me to, you know, into your earphones or your car or wherever you're listening to this for, you know, a long time. 60 minutes is a long time to keep someone's attention. And I want you to know how much I value you uh, as a human being. And I want you to know how proud I am of you for even just showing up for yourself and listening to these podcasts and even just wanting to be a better person or a better parent or whatever the reason it is that you listen to these podcasts. I just want to, you know, I just want to say that you're awesome and that I'm here for you. I'm here to support you and whatever your goals are for yourself. And I love hearing from you guys. And I love recording these podcasts and I love hearing your feedback about the podcast because I know that you're really enjoying them. So just wanted to finish with a little um, moment of tribute for you guys who show up and listen every week. And that's why I show up and do these because I know that you're always at the end of the microphone. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I just, I love to try and support you in any way I can. So have an absolutely awesome week um I, whatever you're doing or awesome weekend whenever you're listening to this um i hope you're having an amazing time working hard towards those goals you know and um i will see you or speak to you next week in another episode of strong and sculpted so take care and bye bye